I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Live Wire podcast. This is the podcast companion, you could say, to the Live Wire radio show. Live Wire radio show is a public radio variety hour recorded in Portland, Oregon, featuring bands and guests and comedians and thinkers and anybody else we can think of who we think you might want to hear from on a given week. We put that radio show out. Uh, on stations all across the country, and then we do this podcast version, which involves a little bit of extra talking, sometimes some extra content, emails, voicemails, things from you out there, the Livewire uh, podcast listeners, and uh, and we, we put it all together, and we put it up there on the internet, and now you're listening to it, apparently. Uh, this week's theme of the radio show was Under Pressure. Uh, we had uh, a number of guests who really know what it's like to be under pressure in, in one way or another. I was feeling a certain amount of pressure this week, too, because, um, well, it had recently been my birthday, and I was under the pressure uh, that uh, you feel in my family to really show your appreciation for gifts, even gifts that are kind of mysterious um, and gifts that might be challenging to pretend you're super excited about. So I talk about that at the top of the show. Um, you know, as I record this, speaking of my birthday... As I record this uh, show, I'm in Bellingham, Washington, where I live, at my little home studio, and um, I want to apologize if there is lawn mowing in the background. All of my neighbors seem to be mowing their lawns. It's a Sunday as I record this. It's kind of the day for that, and I need to go out and mow our lawn, actually, but I may be unable to complete that task because I have a extremely strained calf, like I... Like, I have a pulled muscle in my leg that is making it hard for me to walk. I'm hobbling around the house here. How did I injure myself, you may ask? Was I uh, training for the Olympic decathlon? Or maybe I was saving um, a box of kittens out of a fire and ran in there and, and strained my leg? No, it was none of those things, dear Livewire radio listener. It was, I was stretching in my sleep this morning. And that is a real sign that you are getting old. When you start injuring yourself during your sleep, 
which is precisely what happened to me <laughs> this morning. So anyway, that's the pressure that I'm that I'm operating under the the knowledge that I'm like all of us getting older. I know we're I know it's happening to all of us, but I think getting older is like being stuck in traffic. Like unless it's happening to you at that moment, it's not an interesting topic. You know how somebody gets somewhere and they're like, "Ah, oh, that's traffic. You wouldn't have believed it." And if you weren't stuck in the same traffic, your thought is, yeah, I, I know. We've all been in traffic. It's traffic. But, like, if you're in the midst of it, if you're sitting there, just your car is stopped, it, it just feels so personal and so intense. And, uh, and like, it's such, like, the world needs to know how bad this traffic is. I think that's how I'm feeling about aging. Like, it's happening to all of us. But unless you're dealing with a calf that you strained in your sleep, unless you're personally dealing with something like that at this very moment, you don't care that I'm getting older, and that's fine. You shouldn't care. So let's get rolling with uh, with the radio uh, program here that was Livewire Radio this week. Um, we're also going to hear from author Peggy Ornstein, who wrote a fascinating new book called Girls and Sex about the, the very complicated world out there for young women, women in high school and college, as they try to uh, decide what their sexual life is going to be like. I should mention, too, that, uh, you know, the book is is uh, the book is is interesting. The book is is pretty clinical. The book is not meant to be gratuitous, but it does discuss sex. It's kind of the topic. So if you have some young ones around and you don't want them to hear that kind of thing, uh, you might eh, fast forward fifteen minutes or so in the podcast. Uh, just a heads up on that. Anyway, uh, without uh, further ado or injury to me, let's get into the Livewire Radio Show. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Recorded in front of a live audience in Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire. With authors Peggy Ornstein and Key Watkins. With music from Walter Martin and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire. He's under so much pressure right now, we call him the Diamond, Luke Burbank! Thank you, Jason Rouse. I realized I clapped for myself about one second too long. There's an amount of clapping for yourself that's okay, and then there's too much, and I went right into too much, and I apologize. We have a great show for you. This episode, our theme is Under Pressure, and we have some fabulous guests who are going to be coming out here. They've been under all kinds of different pressure at times in their life, and they have great stories about that and insights. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. There is a certain amount of pressure to hosting a public radio variety show. I would, I would say that the most pressure I feel, this is totally serious, during the whole show is this moment right now. This is the part of the show where I'm supposed to have some little nugget of wisdom for all of you, and it's supposed to be short, but meaningful and serious, but also funny. It's supposed to be a lot of things, and there are weeks where I don't feel like I have anything that fits that description, and this was kind of one of those weeks I was about a half hour ago, I was at our Livewire offices, which are just down the street, down Mississippi Avenue. I was getting dressed, which I do in a conference room in our office, and may God have mercy on the janitorial staff (laughs) if they wander into that nightmare. But I was getting dressed, and I was kind of staring into the middle distance, 
trying to think about what I wanted to talk about right here at the top of the show. And we have these bookshelves in that room that are full of books that people have sent us uh, that we've read when they're coming on the show. And there was one book in the middle of the shelf that started almost glowing. I looked at the spine and I was like, this is the answer to all of my problems. And I have the book here. I really, I'm not exaggerating. I just grabbed this from our offices. Huh. It's called How to Host a Radio Variety Program <laughs> in Portland, Oregon. I'm showing this to the people in the front row. I am not making this up. So I knew we were gonna be okay. And then I started reading the book for tips and the tips made no sense. They were mostly about smuggling and borders and opium fields because it turns out this is a cruel joke. Somebody printed out a pretend book cover and just pasted it to a book that's actually about the golden triangle drug trade <laughs> called Chasing the Dragon. So that's what the monologue is gonna be about. We'll start with Opium Tears, chapter 14. <laughs> the sin does not originate in these mountains. They are merely the latest crucible for an ancient vice. All right, I got something else. I got something else, I know it. Um, I, this actually should feel like no pressure to me because I, I had to survive a massive amount of pressure earlier this week, and that was Mother's Day, which also happens to be my birthday. So we went to my parents' house, but because it was also my birthday, uh, I got a lot of presents, which in my family feels like a lot of pressure because in my family, it's not okay to just say, hey, thanks for the gift. You have to do what we call the Burbank freakout. <laughs> you have to act like this is not a present. This is like you were in the middle of the ocean drowning and someone gave you a life preserver. <laughs> That's how excited you have to be. And the hard part of that is that my mom, my blessed mother, who is the reason I am here on this planet and on this stage, gives gifts that could only be described as perplexing. <laughs> like 10 years ago for Christmas, she gave me a small hand-painted picture that she had picked up somewhere of two naked babies lying on a grassy hill watching a golfer putt a golf ball. <laughs> What do you do with that information <laughs> when you are not a golfer or a pederast? There's nothing for you in that painting. So for, for my birthday, I get a bag from my mom full of things, and some of the things were pretty cool, and some of them were less cool, and then one of them was just mystifying. It was a still completely sealed calendar with pictures of wooden boats from 2012. <laughs> You might think you're good at faking excitement. I defy you to get a calendar from 2012 and act like that was exactly what you were hoping to get. <laughs> but this is the craziest part. I was telling this story to various people this week and somebody hipped me to a website. Turns out calendars are cyclical in their own way and there is a website called When Can I Use This Calendar Again? And I went on the website and it turns out a 2012 calendar can be used again in 2040. 
So props to my mom, that is not four years late, that is 24 years early. Go Susie Burbank. All right, pressure's off, let's do this radio show. Our, our theme this hour is, in fact, under pressure, and if you wanna talk about pressure, try being a high school or college age girls these days, trying to figure out who you are and what your sex life should look like with social media and pornography out there and slut shaming and slut shaming shaming going on. It is a complicated world to navigate, but that is just what Peggy Ornstein does in her new book, Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. The book features in-depth interviews with psychologists, academics, and most importantly, young women themselves. Please welcome Peggy Ornstein to Livewire. Peggy, welcome to the show. I would like to start with two disclaimers here okay. at the top. One, I happen to be the host of the show. I'm gonna do my absolute best to talk about young women and their sexual desires using the right terminology and the right approach. But Peggy, you keep me honest, okay? Let me know when I sound like an out of touch cis white male. <laughs> this book is about people having sex. Yeah. So if you're out there somewhere uh, in a car listening to this radio show and you've got some, some, some young ears in the car with you, might be an okay time to uh, put on that Rafi CD or whatever you guys <laughs> like to do. Because, you know, to talk about this book in an effective way, we need to talk about what's in the book, which mm -hmm. involves plenty of sex. Mm -hmm. The book uh, uses the words new and complicated to describe the landscape. What is new and complicated compared to, say, when you were growing up? Well, you know, one thing is that girls today feel like they're entitled to engage in sexual behavior, but they don't necessarily feel like they're entitled to enjoy it. So one girl, for instance, um, said to me, you know, I come from generations of smart, strong women, and my, my grandma's a firecracker, and my mother is really smart and strong, and my sister and I are loud, and that's our feminine power. And then she proceeded to narrate sort of a string of hookups that were not very reciprocal, not very respectful, um, that were the sum and substance of her sex life. And she said, I don't know, you know, I think girls are just socialized to be meek and not express their needs and wants. And I said, you just told me how strong and smart you are. And she said, yeah, well, nobody told me that that smart, strong image applied to sex. Because you interviewed like over 70 young women for this? I interviewed over 70 young women, and they were um, a, from a pretty broad ethnic spectrum, but they were all uh, college-bound or in college, um, and were largely middle-class girls. And I chose that demographic for a reason, because I wanted to look at girls that we think of as having opportunity, and the girls that we think of as being the beneficiaries of the feminist movement. Because I thought if even those girls who are, you know, so ambitious and doing well in their education and have all these goals, and, you know, they're like leaning in all over the place, these girls. But if even they were toppling in their personal lives, then I thought we couldn't deny that we really needed to have a discussion about it. Let's talk about some of the data. I think it would be easy to assume that teenagers and people in college are having way more sex in 2016 than say in 1976 or 1966. Is that actually the case? Well, I don't know about 1966, but, the, but that certainly- That might have been a great year for yeah, I don't know. Um, young people and <laughs> the loving of each other. Kids are not actually having intercourse. If you define sex by intercourse, which is one of the things I think we have to stop doing, by the way, um, then n kids are actually not having more sex or sex at a younger age, but they are 
doing other things. And by not, by not talking about that, we allow those things, particularly oral sex, to be not sex. And then it's not subject to the same rules and um, uh, about consent and reciprocity and responsibility that we expect. So um, the girls that I talked to, you know, oral sex they would talk about as being no big deal, as long as it went female to male. And I heard so many, and there was a lot of reasons why they would participate in that, why they would do that. There was, you know, it, it built social credibility, it was popularity, it was to improve a relationship. But I heard so many stories of young women performing one-sided oral sex that I started um, saying, what if every time you were with a guy, he wanted you to get him a glass of water from the kitchen, and he never got you a glass of water? Or, or if he did, it was like, <sighs> you want me to, uh, you know, get you a glass of water, you know, like really begrudging. You would never stand for it. And they would laugh and say, you know, well, when you put it that way. You know, and, and, and I put it in this, in a context in the book that um, a psychologist from the University of Michigan, Sarah McClellan, calls intimate justice. And intimate justice is th that just like um, who does the dishes in your house or who vacuums the rug, I'm sure it's you. Uh, we have a Roomba, which was a yeah. negotiated <laughs> settlement between me and my wife. Right. But but it's a political decision, Until right? We get it's robots, a political they can do decision. That other stuff. Yeah. I guess we'll still have to have humans right. working it out. So just like that's, you know, those issues are partly political, right? So sex too has those dynamics, and you have to ask, you know, who is entitled to engage in a sexual experience? Who's entitled to enjoy it? Who's the primary beneficiary? How each partner defines good enough? And honestly, those are really hard questions for adult women. But when you're talking about girls and their early formative experiences, you know, I just kept coming to this idea that I didn't want those to be something that girls had to get over. Uh, we're talking to Peggy Ornstein. Her new book is Girls and Sex. This is Livewire Radio. I'm wondering a little bit about your inspiration for writing this book because you, you wrote uh, a book a while ago called Cinderella Ate My Daughter when mm -hmm. your daughter became obsessed by all the pink and princessy yeah, stuff. Yeah, don't remind her. That's, that's <laughs> that embarrassing. <laughs> she... she does not even uh, formally agree that that was a period of her life, I'm sure, right. now. Yeah. But she is now moving into the age group that you're talking about in this book. Yeah. Was that part of why you decided to write this book? Because oh, you absolutely. were watching your own daughter's changes? Uh, yeah, my daughter, well, she's in middle school. So she's turning 13 this summer. And um, I was hearing a lot of stories from my friends with older kids about, you know, sexting and porn and hookup culture and all these things. And, you know, my initial response was to just want to go, I don't want to know, I don't want to know, because you know, as you probably know, parenting from from ignorance and fear is always a good idea. Yeah, um, that was my approach yeah. anyway. <laughs> Very effective. So I thought, you know, I've got to go out there. I mean, that's my job and, and start talking to girls themselves so that I could surface their voices and find out what they were saying about what was going on and how they felt about it. And also, we were having this umbrella conversation about sexual assault and consent on, on college campuses, which was incredibly important. But there was also part of me that was thinking, Consent is a very low bar for a sexual experience, you know? I mean, like, I was not assaulted. That, that's a very low bar. And I really wanted to know what was happening after yes and what we could do perhaps to make it better. Hold that thought, Peggy Ornstein. We've got to take a short break here. We will come back and talk much more about the new book. It's Girls and Sex. This is Livewire Radio. Stay where you are. Hey there, podcast listeners. It's Luke again. I want to tell you something. First, I want to take a sip of my coffee. Now, I want to tell you that Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, makers of amazing sit-stand desks and chairs. Uh, I use an Ergo Depot desk 
when I am on stage in Portland doing Livewire each week. And my goodness, it's not just an incredibly functional thing, which it is. It goes up, down. You can set preset levels or heights for the desk to go to. You can say position number one, sitting. You, you hit a button, it goes to that position. Maybe you have a standing position. Position number two, it goes to that. But not only is this thing going to really change your life because of its uh, you know health benefits, it's a handsome, handsome desk. It's like a bamboo. It's made out of some kind of bamboo wood. Beautiful, handsome piece of, uh, of functional desk equipment. Uh, the other thing about uh, Ergo Depot, they are a certified B Corp. Well, what is that, you ask, Luke? Let me tell you. A certified B Corp is a business that takes social and environmental impact seriously. Uh, they make great desks and chairs, and they are a socially and environmentally conscious company. And I'm here to tell you, it's not a dream. It's Ergo Depot. You might have thought that those, those things couldn't all happen at the same time. You couldn't be making this amazing equipment and doing so in a way that is good for our environment, but that's exactly what they do there. If you want to find out more info or if you want to schedule an appointment, if, you haven't, if, you have, if you're in Portland and you haven't been to the Ergo Depot headquarters there, just up the street from where we record the show, you have not lived, my friends. So uh, find out more or make an appointment to go to their store by going to ergodepot.com. All right couple of things that we've still got coming up in the show. As I mentioned, we've got Peggy Orenstein talking about her book. Uh, we've got Walter Martin, who is a singer-songwriter. He was with a band called The Walkmen, which you may have heard of. He is out on his own doing solo stuff, and I have been really, really a fan of his uh, since I found out about him just a few months ago. And uh, he, uh, he wrote this. He has a new album out called Arts and Leisure, and it's kind of about art history, which, as you'll hear in the conversation— could be a very pretentious topic, but in his hands is not pretentious at all. It's actually just fun and interesting. Um, and uh, then later on in the program, too, uh, we're going to talk to Dee Watkins, guy from East Baltimore who's written an incredible memoir called The Cook-Up. Um, so, uh, so, so stay tuned for that. That is all coming up uh, as, we, as we roll on here with the Livewire radio show by way of the Livewire podcast. All right, let's keep it going. Welcome back to Livewire radio from PRI. Our theme this hour is Under Pressure. We have author Peggy Ornstein here. Her new book is Girls and Sex, which takes a look at a wide sampling of women in high school and college and what their sex lives look like, what's working for them, what's not working for them. Talk about the role that alcohol plays in a lot of this. Well, to talk about alcohol, you kind of have to talk about the hookup culture. And first you have to talk about a hookup. Now, what's a hookup? Do you know what a hookup is? I thought I did, and then I read the book, and it yeah. <laughs> seemed like completely it was completely meaningless word. Pretty, completely pretty meaningless word. Yeah, um, it might mean kissing. It might mean you know, it could mean anything. And kids actually overestimate what other people are doing because of that. Um, and hookup culture, what has what has changed? I mean, kids did not invent casual sex, right? I mean, please. But but what has changed is the idea that it's normalized that sex should um, proceed rather than rise from arise from intimacy in college campuses particularly, but increasingly in high school, so that whether you decide that you want to be part of that or you want to opt out of it, you still have to define your um, sexuality and your intimate life in relationship to it. And in hookup culture, it's not just lubricated by alcohol. It's dependent on it to create what one um, sociologist called um, compulsory carelessness. So in order to not feel, to you know, avoid catching feelings like it's a disease, um, you sort of, you know, have to be 
drunk. And the more uh, random the hookup, the more drunk you're likely to be. I feel like this is not great news about the youth of America, Peggy. What did you find in your research that was encouraging? Man, we haven't even talked about the whole female pleasure piece well, at all. Well, like I mean, do you want to talk about that first can and I then, talk about and then that get first to the, maybe we can the end stuff? on the good news? Yeah, that would be better. All right. Okay. Because one of the things that was really important to me, one of the biggest takeaways was this disconnect between, you know, performing sexiness and the imperative to do that and, and understanding your own sexuality, which we never talk to girls about. And so... You know, and that starts with the body, and it starts with, with birth. When we have our baby girls and our baby boys, we tend to name all the boys. We, at least we say, there's your pee-pee, something about boys. Girls, it's like... They are pulling on it a lot, so you sort of have to address so are the girls, elephant in the room. Luke, so are girls. So, th but then the, with girls, we say nothing. So there's, you know, there's nothing between... The, there's this whole situation between the navels and the knees. Nothing's going on. So... Then they go into their puberty ed classes and they learn boys have erections and ejaculations and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy. And you get that like steer's head thing inside the girl's body and it grays out between the legs so we never say vulva, we never say clitoris. And again, with this intimate justice framework, you know, girls, fewer than half of girls masturbate ever. And I know, right? And... Um, for the radio he, audience, I... He, he looked... What? I looked like that dog what? that listens to the old-timey record. Right. What? So I tilted my head to the yeah. side with confusion. No, fewer than half of girls 14 to 17 years old have ever masturbated. And then, and then they go into their partnered relationships. And we expect that somehow they're going to think that it's about them, that they're going to be able to articulate their needs, their desires, their wants, that they're going to be able to you know, articulate their limits and have those respected. And it's, it's not a... Re we set them up. We set girls up for inequality in, in heterosexual relationships. It shifts in, in same-sex relationships. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, how do these dynamics play out for same-sex couples, particularly same-sex female couples? Um, well, what was really interesting was when girls talked about their same-sex experiences, they would talk about, they used the phrase going off the script. They talked about being able to create a sexual experience that was that worked for them on their own terms, that was liberating for them on their own terms when they went off that heterosexual script. And one of the big things that was interesting to me about that was I, I talk a lot about whether, you know, the, how we talk about virginity and the value of putting this one act or the lack of value of putting this one act into a separate category. And one of the questions was, well, how does a gay girl know when she's not a virgin? So I asked this girl and she said, yeah, you know, I had to Google that. Yeah. And uh, Google didn't know. <laughs> by the way. I'm sure it had some video suggestions. I'm sure it did, yeah. So, so I said, well, how did you know? What did you, you know, what did you find out? And she said, well, I decided that I wasn't a virgin anymore once I'd had my first orgasm with a partner. And I thought, wow, like, what if for a minute that was the definition? And it was this idea that, you know, thinking of sex as a pool of experiences instead of a race to a goal and asking a young person, like, who is really more sexually experienced? The person who kisses a partner for three hours and learns about erotic tension and sensuality, or the person who gets drunk at a party, rushes to have intercourse so with, a, with a random so they can get over, you know, get it done before they go to college? Uh, the, one of the themes that comes out in this book is the tightrope that young women have to walk these days. You have a quote from someone who says, you know, the opposite of, of a negative should be a positive, but if you, if you are seen as somebody who sleeps with people, you're a slut, and if you aren't, then you're seen as a prude. It's like both sides of this are a negative. Right, and that's, again, where the alcohol comes in, because if you have nowhere to stand, and if you're going to be stigmatized either way, 
But alcohol releases you to a degree from that accountability. Um, well, and it makes it easier. Well, what the hell are we going to do about this? We're going to fix it. <laughs> how do we're we how, fix it. How do we Well, we're fixing we it partly by having these conversations, which have been really cool to go around the country and have conversations like this with people. But, you know, one thing I did, I, I end the book in a co-educational classroom, and I end it also talking about the Dutch. And the, because... It always goes, it's back, always to goes back to the Dutch. I mean, yeah, really, I know. or the Swedes, or something. I know One it does. It does. But what they they there there's comparisons of college women there and college women here talking about their early sexual experiences. And the Dutch girls have everything we want for our girls, like fewer negative things like pregnancy and disease, more positive things like enjoying the experience and being able to talk to their partners. And the big difference is that parents, teachers, and doctors talk frankly and explicitly to their kids from a very young age about sex, and particularly with parents, it's not that they're necessarily more comfortable than American parents talking about sex, but whereas American parents tend to talk ex exclusively about risk and danger, Dutch parents talk about balancing responsibility and joy. And that shift to me as a parent made a huge difference in how I think about having these conversations, multiple conversations, with my own daughter. Have you had those conversations yet, or do you just leave the book on her nightstand? <laughs> She's a little too young for the book. Um, I do, though, I, 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 I do take her to interviews and such sometimes because they, it sparks conversation with us. Or I'll say, you know, um, somebody at one of the interviews that I did asked me about something. I was wondering, you know, what would you say? They, they wanted to know what to tell a 13-year-old girl. What would you say to that? And then that, you know, I've enlisted her, and then we have a conversation about it. So, so this is useful advice to the parents of America. If you want to talk to your kids about sex, write a series of best-selling books. <laughs> And then just use that as a side, that was my side door into the conversation. Great. All right, Peggy, uh, your book is about the sex lives of modern young people. But as you already mentioned, young people have always been amorous. It's just that back in the olden days, they had to be coy with how they talked about it, which led to some pretty surprising euphemisms. Uh, euphemisms that we noticed sounded a lot like indie bands that have actually played on this radio show. And we could not let this weird similarity go unremarked upon. So we put a little quiz together for you called Old Fashioned Sexy Times or Former Livewire Musical Guest. Oh, boy. I've always wanted to do something like this. Great. You, you're up for it? Yeah. Okay. So these are either bands Totes. that have okay. actually played on Livewire or it is a way that people used to describe sex, uh, which we found out about in a book called The 1811 Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue by Francis Gross. Okay. Okay. I'm All ready. Right. How, about a, how about Pulley Holly? P-U-L-L-Y-H-A-W-L-Y. No, it's not a band. That's sex. No, it's a band. Which guess are you going to go with? Band. It's actually sex. A game of Polly Holly meant having a series of affairs back in the 1800s. All right, you're over one. That's all right. There's still time. How about hook and anchor? Old-timey sex or band that has played on this show? Sex? That's a Portland-based band that mixes country, folk, rock, and roll. With Dang, traditional I'm so narrative. much better at this stuff when I'm listening to it on Stitcher or something. You know? I know. It's always easier at yeah. home. By the way, they played on the October 16th episode 2014, if you want to go listen to Hook and Anchor. All right. Here's another one. Old-timey sex term or band that played on this show, Blow the Ground Sills. <laughs> band. That's sex. This. Ground sills. People, are... help me out. What? <laughs> These people are all going home to blow the ground sills later, believe me. Yeah, 
that seems so obvious. That seemed way too it's obvious. It's a very Portland thing. Way too obvious. So ground sills were our foundation timbers. So if you were blowing the ground sills, you were having a wild time on the floor. I don't even know what a foundation timber is. That's not fair. Okay, here's another one. Okay. Indie band that has played on this show or way to describe sex from the olden times. Deep Sea Diver. <laughs> band. That is a band with some help from the audience. No, yes. I knew it was a band. I knew it was a band. I knew it was a band. It's okay. the spin-off project of Jessica Dobson, who was also in The Shins. They played the November uh, 15th, 2014 episode mm -hmm. of Livewire. Okay, here is the last one. I think this is the most difficult. Blanket Hornpipe. I'm saying sex. In fact, it is sex. Yes! Yes, Peggy Ornstein. <laughs> a hornpipe was a sailor's song and dance. Mm -hmm. So to do a thinking. song and dance under the blanket meant you can fill in the I, blanks. I, I, that's, that's how I figured that's that out. That's how you kind of reverse yeah. engineer yeah, yeah, yeah. that. By the way, when you start thinking about things in these terms, every band we've ever had on the show <laughs> sounds like a sex thing. Magic Mouth, Blitzen Trapper, Soft Sleep, which I don't think is how you're supposed to do it, um, Tau and the Get Down, Stay Down, Taco Cat. Obviously. And, unfortunately, sometimes it happens, Do Over. <laughs> Peggy Ornstein, thank you so much for coming thank on the you, show. Great job. That was Peggy Ornstein. The book is Girls and Sex. Minneapolis, St. Paul are known as the Twin Cities. Now Alaska Airlines is offering twice daily flights to and from Seattle. Coincidence? You decide. Alaska is also offering a daily flight to and from Portland. Learn more at alaskaair.com. All right, I am so excited about our musical guest this episode. I got obsessed with him a few months ago when I saw one of his videos on YouTube. And speaking of being under pressure, I started tweeting at him and his management. I basically started cyber-stalking this guy. And I guess it worked because he is here with us. Walter Martin was a member of the bands Jonathan Fire Eater and The Walkman before striking out on his own. His latest record is Arts and Leisure. Please welcome Walter Martin to Livewire. Hey, man. How you guys doing? Welcome Hello. to the show. Thank you. Where did you uh, grow up? I grew up in uh, Washington, D.C. And you started playing music really young, right? Your, your band, uh, Jonathan Fire Eater, was some guys you went to high school with? It was. I actually started, my first band was when I was 12. Um, we're called The Resurrection. And we had a song called Bad Attitude. <laughs> <laughs> Which is about, it was about how we really didn't like cops, I remember. That's the only line I remember. Were you guys getting a lot of heat from the cops <laughs> I there? I guess we were, yeah. yeah. This new record of yours, Arts and Leisure, is being described as being about art history, which sounds so pretentious. Great. And it is not a pretentious record. It's wonderful. I listen to it about once a day. Oh, thank Were you. you worried, though, that people would get the wrong idea? Uh, I sort of like the idea of people getting the wrong idea and then listening to it and, and being very surprised by it. Um, I, I think people who knew me and who knew my other stuff would, would immediately know that it wasn't going to be a very academic record. Um, I just... I, it just sounded like something that, that could be very funny. I can imagine, right when I thought of art, an art history record, I thought, I could just imagine the jokes. And so I, I kind of liked the idea. Did, so you had the idea for the, the sort of record being about art history, or did you just have a bunch of songs that were about art, and you were like, well, this is a record? You know, I was wondering that. I, I think I had one art history song, and then I thought, maybe I could write a bunch of these, because I kind of like them. And it's, I, it was sort of through a long process of not, not doing it that I did it. 
<laughs> uh, so there's some uh, motivational speaking for all of you <laughs> Tony Robbins types out there. Just don't do it until you eventually do it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what song are we going to hear here? I'm going to do, this is, um, a lot of the songs are specifically about uh, spe specific artists and things like that. This one is, like, is the first song on the record. It's, um, it's about my employment history, actually. But uh, some, my, some of my jobs growing up were... Um, working in museums. So it sort of lays a little bit of the, of the groundwork for my uh, interest in art history. Uh, this is called Jobs I Had Before I Got Rich and Famous. This is Walter Martin on Livewire. Mowing lawns, saving up for a guitar when I was 15 and long and lean. And just like that grass, boy, I was green. <laughs> roses in Washington, D.C. Going off to college, so I had to save up. But delivering roses really sucks. Sweating all summer in a slimy tux. But at least I made a couple bucks. Freshman in college, I was delivering pizza. But to deliver one pie was a half an hour round trip. And college kids, man, they don't tip. And so I quit. It was their loss. That was the only driver not stealing from the boss and siphoning gas from students' cars. Okay, this next verse actually has a character you might not know. It's this guy, um, Philippe de Montebello, who was, uh, he's a real guy, who was the uh, director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art for many years. He's a very famous, like, French art historian. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that's, that's who Philippe de Montebello is. Metropolitan Museum at the telephone switchboard When a caller would ask for Philippe de Montebello I'd transfer it to my apartment Where an unsuspecting fellow My roommate, Stuart, would be sound asleep He'd answer the phone and he heard the beep. And pretty quickly he'd realize that he wasn't Philippe. <laughs> Information counter at the Cloisters Museum. And one day Billy Joel walks in. I take a long, long look at him. A dignified old music man and that's when I devised my plan and that little plan has brought me here where the spotlight shines and the people all cheer and the pretty girls flock from far and near to touch my hand and hear my song and buy my t-shirts and sing along. Damn, this sure beats mowing lawns. Thank you. That's Walter Martin. Thank you. Okay, so how did the 
notion strike you to start? You were it was the Metropolitan Museum. Of yes, Art? yeah, the big one in New York. Yeah, and you worked at the front desk. Essentially, I worked. Uh, I sold admission tickets, and I also worked at the switchboard sometimes. Were the people asking for the director, were they being rude? I mean, why did they get routed to Stuart, your roommate? Um, there were a lot of people that called that were pretty rude. So I, at first, I would um, – sometimes I would just blow – I had a little mouthpiece sometimes. I would just blow really hard on the mouthpiece and hang up on them because <laughs> they would have no idea. They would assume it was just an accident. And then I, um, then I realized I could transfer to different departments in the museum. So I would, um, I would say, oh, yeah, he's in the, the janitorial letter. And I'd just cl like, click it. And, and I, you could imagine that the, the angry person who was already annoyed was very, very annoyed. Though I couldn't hear it. But then I figured out that I could um, call outside lines. So I was like, wow, I could call my apartment. This confirms so many suspicions I have about when I get hung up on and rerouted. Right. It's some jerk, some 19-year-old yeah. jerk. Walter Martin, ladies and gentlemen, he will be back out Thank here. Thank you. Thanks, man. This is Livewire Radio. We're talking about being under pressure this episode, which is something D. Watkins knows all about. He grew up in East Baltimore, surrounded by drugs, gangs, violence. Somehow he kept it together. He did well enough to, in school to get into Georgetown. And right about the time he found that out, he also found out his older brother, who was his personal hero, had been shot dead. What do you do then? Well, it's all laid out in D. Watkins' amazing and intense new memoir, The Cook-Up. Please welcome D. Watkins to Livewire. Welcome to the show, D. Thank you. For uh, people that are unfamiliar, can you just kind of describe East Baltimore at the time you grew up there, what it was like? So the best way for me to describe East Baltimore from when I grew up was, was this. So my aunt, she used to live in one of those three-story row homes. And um, when I was like nine years old, I was charged with the task of putting in the, the window unit, the, you know, the AC unit. This is like before everybody had Century A and all that. You know, this is like early 90s. <laughs> and, you know, me and my cousin were struggling with the window unit. Like, we're struggling. But, you know, we, you know, he pushed me and I pushed him and we got the window unit in. When we got it in, the screen fell down out front. So I said, okay, no problem. You know, I'll hide the screen. Um, you know, she'll cut the AC on. She'll relax and everything will be cool. So I went downstairs to get the screen. And the dude was running up the street without screen. So basically, and when I grew up, um, it was at the height of the crack era. And everything, even a window screen, could be, could be stolen. And, and some of the things um, that a lot of us draw resiliency from in that time is um, we all knew something was going to happen to you. You were going to get beat up or someone was going to, you know, rob you or shoot you or, you know, at the end of the day, something was going to happen to you and you just, you had to be ready for it. Now, there is another way that story could be told, which is like, honey, we've been praying for a window screen. And I'll be damned if I was walking down the street and one fell out of a window. <laughs> we finally got the window screen. All of our prayers are answered. I want to know what he sold it for. Like, yo, <laughs> there was, you know. <laughs> Very specific market for that window screen. Um, tell me a little bit about your, your older brother, who you, who you said in the book uh, it was like he was your hero, and yet you actually got to know him and touch him. Yeah, he was, he was one of those people who, you know, we were caught up in this whole huge chaotic mess that, that, that made up East Baltimore, but he stuck out. Um, he wasn't a bully, even though he could have been a bully. He was nice to everybody, um, always treated women with respect. He was just a nice guy. 
He was funny. Um, he didn't really talk a lot, but every time he says something, it worked. You know, you got some. I, of, I don't know what that feels like, unfortunately, <laughs> but I, I'm gonna go with you. So it's like I guess it also goes. It ties into the theme of um, and I think about this a lot. Is saying yes to something is always saying no to something else. So to me, that was my hero, who I looked up to, but because of the industry and the line of work he was in. And being caught up in a drug trade, he could have potentially been like a horrible person to somebody else. So I can only just judge off my own experience. But um, he challenged me. You know, he talked me into going to school for computers. And Yeah, didn't he basically <laughs> lock you up with some books and say study? I mean, more or less? Yeah, he, you know, he's, the one thing he said is um, you, need to, you need to read. He never really put it in context the way I try to do with young people today, but he always told me how important it was. And as I got older, I thought about how he was one of the few people in my neighborhood that actually read. And the way he approached the world was completely different. So um, that, you know, that always stuck with me. Do you remember exactly where you were when, when you learned that your older brother had, had been shot? Yeah, I was, I was hanging out with my aunt. You know, I just found out I got into a couple of different colleges. I had went away to like this little basketball thing, so I was gone. And when I came back, I had all this mail from these schools, some rejection letters, but then some acceptance letters to some really good schools. And you know we was you know we were sitting in a house and uh, we was rolling the blunt and and uh, listening to music and um, then I got that knock on the door and you know I, I didn't really believe it so you know I had to go outside and see what was going on myself and when I got to the crowd and everyone was looking at me wet bent faces everywhere and I still I didn't really believe it I had to see it for myself and then I actually saw it and when I saw it I was like whoa like. Everything felt different. Like the whole, like I felt like whatever section of the world I lived in had just caved in and uh, with me under it. If you don't mind me asking, so he was still physically on the street when he you was, went out there? He was lying in the street um, behind the caution tape that was taped off, and he was lying there with like, you know, pieces of his, of his, his face knocked off. So it was like, um, it's like something straight out of a horror movie. And it wasn't the first time I saw something like that, but it was different because it was him. You know, it Is was, it still it something that's, that's hard for you to talk about? It's hard for me to talk about it because um, I still, I haven't yet found out a way to deal with that type of trauma. Like, um, I've been conditioned to think that these things are normal. Um, and then when I have some experiences, you know, I teach... I teach a class called Context of the Urban Child at Johns Hopkins University. So we all talk about our childhoods and, you know, and I bring my story up. The whole class looks at me like, yeah, <laughs> you know? and it's like, you know, I got to realize I got to put that filter on and ease them into how some of these things went down. Uh, we're talking to D. Watkins. His book is The Cookup. It's incredible. I recommend everybody uh, get the book, read it. it. It really takes you into a world that a lot of us don't know enough about. Um, so your, your brother is gone, and he leaves this safe behind, which I think you refer to in the book as, it was it your trust fund? Yeah. It was, what was yeah. in this safe? So um, it was drugs and guns, um, some basketball cards, Polaroids, um, and some cash, a bunch of money. Like a lot of cash, like $70,000? Yeah, like $70,000, give or take. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of cash. Um, <laughs> And I knew it was something in the safe because, you know, I, I, knew what he, I knew what he was into. Everybody knew what he was into and what he was doing. And uh, he's such a neat freak. Like, even, you know, opening a safe, like, everything with him is just, like, neat and organized, like, everything. So it's like, you hear about a guy who's coming up on the street selling drugs, you think, um, 
super predator, right? <laughs> you don't think meat freaks are like all his sneak, <laughs> all his sneakers were organized and the, you know his food in the, the fridge was organized and like you know color coded packets of Kool Aid. Like, who is this person? But um, everything was neat and tucked away and um, the whole. So initially, I went to college right. and. College didn't work for me because when you grow up in a place like East Baltimore, you don't really get a chance to meet white people, um, except for maybe like some housing police. And um, well, public radio will cure that for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Welcome to White Town. I know. <laughs> I know. I've been I've been doing a little bit of public yeah. radio. I've met, All right, you got it. I've met my friend. Cool. You know, I used to be that guy to say, I, I, what? I have a white friend. <laughs> you know, there's Tom. <laughs> you actually you know, did. There's it, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, am I on the list now? Yeah. <laughs> or is there a different Luke? No, Tell me you, I'm the only it's Luke. You, it's you, man. Ooh, it's you. Got some cred, finally. <laughs> so you had you had gone to school, uh, mm -hmm. but it, it, it wasn't really a good fit for you. It's and crazy. so you come home and, and you open this safe, and there's, I think you write in the book, it's about $100,000 of stuff in there. And now some people would be like, oh my God, he can pay for college. He can open a Subway franchise. He's yeah. got it made. That is not what you did. All of these things went through my mind, but at that time, I honestly, I really, 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 I wanted to, I wanted to do what he did. I wanted to die too. A huge part of me wanted to die. Like I know, like it's a difficult thing to deal with, and, and it's a difficult thing to talk about. But for me, I wasn't gonna put a gun to my head and do it myself. But I was just gonna say, you know what? I'm just gonna go into these streets, man, and I'm just gonna have some experiences until it's my time to go to. You did go to the streets. You did sell drugs. You didn't die. Why did you finally extricate yourself from that life? Because I was lucky to have some experiences with like a bunch of different people who was exposing me to things outside of my neighborhood, but in a way that I can understand. So I started traveling and I went to a couple of different places. And in that time, I learned that my neighborhood was this big. Like, you know, you can't even see, you can't even see Baltimore City on a globe. And, um... I was I was I was fortunate enough to always be an inquisitive person and 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 I just you know I I wanted I wanted to live but I just didn't really know what I what I wanted to do I knew I wanted to do something but I knew I didn't want to die on the street. All right, we've got to take a short break, but we're going to come back and talk much more with D. Watkins. His new book is The Cook Up. We'll be right back with more Live Wire. Hello there, podcast listeners. It's Luke again. I want to take a quick moment of your time to mention that we are in our spring membership drive here at LiveWire. What does that mean? That means that we are hoping you will take a minute out of your life to go to the LiveWire Radio Show a website, which is LiveWireRadio.org, and join our League of Extraordinary Listeners. This, uh, this plan it goes through June 10th. This is our goal. We want to raise $10,000 because I need to hire some sort of trainer to help me work out this whole calf muscle situation. I mean, it's not going to fix itself, and uh, it clearly needs some kind of medical intervention. Anything left from that $10,000 after I get my rig going, after I get this whole situation worked out, that will go directly to LiveWire. Actually, all of the $10,000 will go to LiveWire. And, uh, and it, doesn't, it doesn't take that much money on an individual basis uh, to get us to that number, because there are a fair number of you out there listening to this here podcast. But if we get a lot of you to, to go to the website and to give us 5 bucks a month or 10 bucks a month, that will add up really quickly. So if you like this podcast, if you listen to it during the week uh, and you look forward to it and it kind of brightens your week a little bit or stimulates your mind or does something positive in your life, it might be something that's worth uh, 10 bucks a month. 
And we have all kinds of uh, cool thank you gifts if you are willing to do that. $10 a month gets you a LiveWire tote bag. We'll read your name here on this podcast. Um, and there's a whole list of things at LiveWireRadio.org that you can get as a thank you. Um, it would mean so much to us, and we really would not be able to do this show without the people who have already signed up to be part of the League of Extraordinary Listeners. So again, if you can help us get to this $10,000 goal, uh, you will help us keep this this here public radio show rolling along. LiveWireRadio.org is where you can do that. We want to thank some of our current members. Trent Finley of Woodburn, Oregon. Gail Hernandez of Beaverton, Oregon. And Mark Brody of Portland, Oregon. Now, if you, if you figured out a through line there, those are all people in Oregon. First of all, they're all wonderful people because they're part of the League of Extraordinary Listeners. Um, but they're also in Oregon. I would, I would love it if we can get some of you out there in the other parts of the country who listen to this podcast uh, to uh, take a moment, go to LiveWireRadio.org and join the League. So maybe next week when I'm reading the thank yous, it will be people in far-flung places. We got Oregon is really, Oregon is stepping up, you guys. It's where we do the show from. Okay, so that's fair. But let's get some people in uh, Tampa, some people in um, um, Beacon, New York, some folks in, I was just in uh, the Texas Panhandle uh, this week. Let's get some people in like Clarendon, Texas. Shout out to my homies in Clarendon, Texas, who I who I met the other day. I, I uh, a, a, along with doing Livewire, I do some TV work for CBS Sunday Morning. And I was doing an interview in Clarendon, Texas, on a Thursday of this week. And I got there, and uh, I'll be darned if the entire town of Clarendon, Texas, did not show up to watch me do the TV interview. I've never had that happen before. And I just couldn't, I couldn't have imagined a nicer f- group of people. So if any of my cl- homies from Clarendon, Texas are listening, maybe you guys want to check in, livewireradio.org, and join the League of Extraordinary Listeners. All right, coming up. Uh, D. Watkins uh, will talk about his book and really his life. I mean, his book, The Cook-Up, is just, it's a memoir. It's a description of things that have actually happened to him, and uh, he's going to talk about that. That is riveting stuff. You do not want to miss that. And also, Walton Martin, uh, Walter Martin will do a duet called Sing to Me, which our drummer in our band, Walker Spring, she decided to, or at least we asked her to, and she said yes. She stepped up, and she Sung the song, sang the song? What do you, is it sung the song or sang the song? She performed the song along with Walter Martin, and it was gorgeous. Uh, so uh, that's another thing you definitely are not going to want to miss. And uh, we, will, we will recommence, we will rejoin the Livewire radio show in progress right now. Take a listen. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We're talking to Dee Watkins. His book is The Cook-Up. Um, you, you did go back to school. You are a college professor now. Uh, you've written two books, uh, which uh, are to great acclaim. I understand, though, that this, this latest book, The Cook-Up, you basically kind of just showed up at a publisher's office in New York without an appointment to try to s- pitch the book? Yeah, so I had a connection. So this is the place to actually publish the book. They passed on me um, twice. And for anyone who's ever sold a book to a major publisher, you know they have the best rejection letters in the world. <laughs> rejection letters are so good. They should get like, you know, like awards or something. They're so good. So um, this editor, one of the editors, she called me up and she said, um, she said, look, the woman from the trade paperback division says she'll talk to you if you make it to New York. When can you make it to New York? And I was like, now. What are you talking about? Like, with jog up there. So um, 
So she said, okay, I can probably, I can maybe get you in there with her at five o'clock. So you know me, I get everywhere early. Um, you know, you get, you tell me to be there by five p.m. You know, I, you know, just don't believe in the whole colored people time thing. It's not true. You tell, he was I, here at Mississippi Studios <laughs> at ten a.m. I should you mention. Know, yeah. I get everywhere early. So. I got there and um, you know I got there around like four o'clock and she said okay yeah she's on the phone she's finishing up a call and she's gonna talk to you so I said cool I'm gonna be ready for her you know I got a marketing plan I got a strategy I know I got connections in the school systems I'm gonna move these books like she's gonna I'm gonna blow her mind I know some white people at public radio <laughs> I know we got this <laughs> so five o'clock came and she was still on the phone and then six o'clock came and then seven o'clock came and I'm still sitting out there but you know I'm again I'm hungry like I want to sell a book um I've been through the streets so you know waiting for the publishing meeting is like very easy for me it would have been more tough to sit through a Ben Affleck movie it's very it's very <laughs> it's very easy for me that's fair so, <laughs> that is fair so I'm waiting so I'm waiting and um she comes you know she, you know it's like seven o'clock and she comes out he said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know the phone call was gonna was gonna be that long. You know, sit down. Let's let's talk." So, you know, I'm telling her about myself and what I'm trying to do and my plans. And there was an HBO show called The Wire. If you guys saw The Wire, right? Yeah. So I don't know if you remember the end of this, like maybe season four, or season five. There was a young woman. Um, her name was Snoop, and she was sure. basically like a murderer on the show. Yeah. So Snoop had a book about her life. So what the publishing woman said to me, and Snoop is from like she's not from my neighborhood. But she's from a close neighborhood. So she said, oh, well, and Snoop's real name is Felicia. So she said, yeah, you're from Baltimore City. You grew up in the street. We'll market you if we gave you a book deal. We'll do you just like we did Felicia. Same thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> and at that point, a light bulb went off. I said, you know what? I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know that she don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> And that's going to be my superpower. So I use that to just make her question everything from how she ran her business to the shoe she picked out. <laughs> and I left the office with a book deal. It was a wrap. <laughs> and the book is amazing. It's called The Cook-Up. It's Dee Watkins' new book. Go check it out, Dee. Thanks, man. Thank you. This week's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, featuring high-quality meats that are free of antibiotics, added growth hormones, and animal byproducts in feed, because antibiotics belong in your medicine cabinet, not your pork chops. More information at WholeFoodsMarket.com. Please welcome back, Walter Martin. Now, this is an exciting moment for us as a show because I don't think we've ever tried something like this before. Uh, we have our, our guest musician, Walter Martin. His new record is Arts and Leisure. Uh, he's also uh, got a song on a previous album that I love so much and have been uh, just you know singing to myself for so long that we knew he was going to come all the way out here to Portland. We wanted to figure out a way to get him to play this song. The thing is, the song involves a male and a female singer. So our own Walker Spring from our house band is going to stand in. <laughs> All right. Uh, There's a song called Sing to Me. It's uh, I made a kids record a couple years ago, and this is sort of like the romantic centerpiece of it. Um, sort of about like, like schoolyard, schoolyard romance. Very exaggerated. Uh, here we go. 
butterflies They fill my guts when I look in your eyes A heart that's young is filled with sweet surprise Only the innocent can sympathize Let's tell you who helped make this show possible. First of all, huge thanks to our guests, Peggy Ornstein, Dee Watkins, and Walter Martin. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Hatton is our producer and editor. Our announcer and writer is Jason Rouse. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Elia Unverzat is our backstage coordinator. House sound by D. Neil Blake. Our on-air mix by Sean Flora. Thanks to Revival Drum Shop. Additional funding provided by the Meyer Memorial Trust, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. For more information about the show or how to become a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org and you can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
PRI Public Radio International. Hey there, Livewire podcast listeners. It's Luke. Still, we are um, we're getting near the end of the show, but I have to tell you, uh, this is even by our standards, by our highly improvised standards of this <laughs> podcast. Uh, we are now going to try something that we have never done before. Um, by the way, if you ever want to email me or call the voicemail line, the email number, or email number, the email address is hey Luke at LiveWireRadio.org. Hey Luke, hey Luke, uh, maybe you should uh, have more of a plan when you do this podcast. You could say that to me if you want. Hey Luke at LiveWireRadio.org, uh, and the voicemail line is eight zero three five nine seven. 2346 803-597-2346 803-LW-RADIO Leave us a voicemail message We'll probably play it To be honest with you Unless it's Really obscene or something So this is what uh, We've never done before On the show Our fine, fine producer Laura Haddon Who puts this Podcast version Of the radio show together She sent me an email She said For the ending segment Of the podcast We were hoping to try Something a little different Can you start recording yourself And then listen to Jason's message I assume that's from Jason Rouse, our uh, esteemed announcer on the program, um, before listening to the files in this folder. So I am supposed to listen to a voicemail message from our announcer here, which I have not previewed. I do not know what it says. And then Laura says in the email, please record any reactions you may have that you are comfortable sharing. Uh, If you hate this and or if it's super embarrassing, you don't need to include it. But we wanted to do something special for you and thought it might be a fun way for our podcast listeners to get to know you a little better. So that is what we're going into here. And I'm going to play this voicemail message from our announcer. And then I guess I'm going to record any reactions that I may have and am comfortable sharing. Hey, Luke, it's Jason. I guess it's not even a voicemail message. It's just a message from Jason, our announcer. See, that's how little I knew about it. Take a listen. Hey, Luke. It's Jason. I am coming to you at the end of the podcast from the spare bedroom in my bachelor's apartment somewhere in Portland, Oregon, with a birthday greeting. More, more like birthday instructions for you. It was your birthday. You turned 40. It's the big one. And everyone at the Livewire Central headquarters decided we need to do something special for you. And we thought, what, what do we do? So what we did is we stole your, your phone during the show we copied all your contacts and we started calling people. We started asking them, is there anything, any piece of advice Luke may have given you over the years that you would like to share? And so many people said yes. So we put some of them together. They're here for you now. Advice you may have given people close to you over the years and maybe even a piece of advice they'd like to offer you. So let's do that now. So I just need you to sit back, listen to this. People love you, Luke. And uh, you can count us as, as some of them. And uh, that's all for me. Happy birthday, buddy. Here you go. Ah, Jason. That was super sweet. I, I was supposed to click on this other folder, which I think um, probably has maybe some kind of a audio file on it, which I guess we'll all find out about here coming up. All right. I have a list of voicemails here. I'm just going to play them and uh, try not to become... Vaklempt. Here's the voicemail number one. Hi, Luke. Andrew Walsh here from um, TBTL. I would say the best piece of advice I ever got about being on the radio or even working 
in the radio business came from you. And it was succinct, it was to the point, and it was this. Never read the comments. <laughs> it's good advice, Luke. Someday I may even heed that advice. Happy birthday, buddy. That's my friend uh, who I do a uh, podcast uh, called uh, TBTL with, Mr. Andrew Walsh. Um, and uh, I, I, I'll try not to take 10 minutes responding to each one of these because that would be even more self-serving than this already is, which is would be incredible to somehow make this more about me. But um, I, I have learned over the years that uh, there are there's a, like I would say f- after three comments in an Internet chat room, particularly about like a, any kind of radio show that I've worked on. After about three comments, no good comes from going any deeper. It's like a mine shaft. You don't want to be at the bottom of the mine shaft, right, in case there's a situation. You don't want to be at the bottom of an internet comment thread. It's almost never a good place to be. But, um, okay, that, that was the first one. Here comes another one. Hey, babe, it's your wife, in case that wasn't evident by me saying babe. Um, anyway, I wanted to wish you a happy birthday and, and say that if there's one thing I've learned in knowing you, it's that you are not perfect, but... You are, without a doubt, um, one of the most extraordinary people I've ever known. And and I don't even think you fully realize that. You just have such a wonderful impact on people, my love. And you know, I am not one to blow smoke. In fact, I think you, <clears throat> you typically say I am the wind on top of your wings. But you really have created these, you know, little radio pod communities where people feel like they're a part of something and they feel like they belong. And, you know, that's a really special, valuable thing in this world. And I just want to say I think you're pretty great. (laughs) Anyway, I love you. Happy 40th birthday. Bye. Wow. You know what? I have to just, everybody stay where you are. I need to go in the other room and give my wife a hug. See, that's the reason that you record a show like this from your actual house. So if you get like a super sweet message from your wife like that, you can just walk down the hall and tell her thanks a lot. Um, I am I'm I'm feeling a feeling right now uh, as I'm recording this because I really am hearing all this stuff for the first time. Uh, that is complicated. I'm super overwhelmed, actually. Like I. Uh, I am pretty comfortable being in front of people, recording things like this, being on stage. The one time I become really uncomfortable is when people are saying nice things about me and to me. So this is really sweet and really an honor and also a wee bit embarrassing. All right, here's the next message. I do not know who any of these messages are from, but uh, let's take a listen. Hi, Luke. This is your other ma. I just wanted to say happy birthday to my favorite (laughs) son-in-law. Aw, as my mother-in-law, Cheryl Bolden. Um, We should mention that I'm her only son-in-law. I'm not trying to take any of the shine off of that compliment, but she's she's not only loving and amazing, she's she's also diplomatic. And if she had an additional son-in-law, I don't think she would say that. But it works in our relationship because I'm I'm it. All right, here's another one coming at you. Hi, this is Mike with a uh, birthday well wish for Luke. So two memories. One is years ago. 
this is my friend Mike Pesca, who hosts a, a, a great podcast called The Gist. You also might remember, he's the kind of the backup host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He was the guy who was hosting when they had Kim Kardashian on, and it was a big kerfuffle. Uh, so uh, just to put this in context, in case you didn't know, Mike is amazing, and anything he ever does, be it radio or television, is worth checking out. Two memories. One is years ago, when I maybe I'd known Luke for a year, I went to be on Jeopardy, non-celebrity Jeopardy, and uh, let's cut to the chase. I lost. And I stayed with Luke, and Luke not only gave me a room and some sympathy, he gave me something that was really important that I needed. He gave me a dog. Well, actually, his boxer just decided to crawl to bed with me. But I got to tell you, when you're feeling at your life's lowest and you blew it on a question you should have known on Jeopardy, there is nothing better than a boxer to hug at night. And the second uh, lesson, life lesson, is to thine own self be true, because I remember he was doing a show at NPR, and um, some country recording artist came up, might have been Kenny Chesney, might have been, no, it wasn't Blake Shelton, it was some joke of a guy, maybe a Toby Keith type, and Luke said something like, yeah, but come on, Kenny Chesney sucks, and his co-host said, I can't say that, there are people who like Kenny Chesney, and Luke said something along the lines of, but I am not those people, and I need to tell you that I think Kenny Chesney sucks, so to thine own self be true, and let that be your lodestar and guide star. Happy birthday, Luke. Aww. Thanks, Mike. Um, the question that that uh, torpedoed Mike's Jeopardy dreams, and let me tell you one other thing about Mike Pesca. He is his he's I would say he's probably the smartest person I've ever met, and I've met a lot of smart people doing this job. But he is I mean he could have reeled off a good ten wins in a row on that show if he got hot. He was leading going into Final Jeopardy, if I remember the details right, and. The question was, um, it was something along the lines of, name a person who has uh, won an Oscar and had a number one, a Billboard number one song. And I, I want to say it was, it was uh, Jamie Foxx and Barbara Streisand might have been. It was like, name two. There were three people. It was like name two out of the three people. I don't remember. Maybe it was like Frank Sinatra might have been the third, but he got it wrong and he was he was pretty bummed because he was leading at the end. And if he would have if he would have gotten that one, they record at like a bunch of Jeopardies at a time. You know, they, I think they record like three or four shows in a day. And if you get on Hot Street, you could just. I mean, if you're Mike Pesca, not if you're me. I. Maybe just as an exercise in humility, since this is an exercise in making me feel very loved, maybe I need to counterbalance this by just recording myself watching Jeopardy on TV once. Because if you listen to the answers that I actually throw out there as possible answers to the questions, it is embarrassing. Like, I would have negative $4 million at the end of an episode of Jeopardy because I am just guessing with abandon. And uh, it's not good. Anyway, point being... Uh, Appreciate the call from Mike. Thanks, dude. Um, let's uh, let's go to the fifth message in a series here. Um, take a listen to this. This is a birthday message for Luke. Hi, Luke. I'm Phyllis, your friend from Radio Jobs, and you helped me make my first radio story. You were only 26, and I was 30, and I was a new intern in a public radio newsroom. So I was kind of an oddball intern-wise. Uh, it's kind of old to be an intern, but they let me do it. 
and um, I was working on my first story, and someone said, you know, it's good, it's cool, um, but it needs music because it needs to sound really cool. And the only cool person who works here is Luke, so you have to go ask him for music. So that's kind of intimidating. You could have been like, I'm too busy or whatever, but, um, of course, because you are you and you are cool and you're nice, you did help me and you gave me music for that story. And to this day, it's one of my favorite stories I've ever done. It's about racism that happens on the phone, which is a pretty public radio kind of thing to do a story about. Uh, but I really liked the way that it turned out. And you helped me when it would have been just as easy or maybe even easier to not help me. And I'll always remember that. And I've never gotten to tell you that before. And I think that 40-year-old Luke would be really proud of 26-year-old Luke for doing that, and at least I hope you are, because it was a really nice thing to do. And I think a lot of people in a competitive profession don't do that kind of thing, even if it only takes two seconds. So it's a great lesson to me about what people remember about us, because I will always remember that you did that for me. So thank you for helping me, and happy birthday. Aw, that is so nice. That's Phyllis Fletcher, who is a, now she's a, you know, she's a high-level, high-level manager person and editor in the Northwest Public Radio scene. And this is exactly why you shouldn't do anyone any favors, because she was able to leverage that story and a bunch of other amazing stories she did to far surpass me in terms of public radio influence. And um, she's right, it is a competitive business, and I I regret deeply uh, helping her race past me. That's also a theme, by the way, of a lot of the people that I've known in my uh, time doing uh, radio, uh, public radio in particular, is that most of them now have cooler jobs than me. Um, and I, uh, I'll admit to a certain amount of resentment. Boy, this is taking a weird turn, isn't it? Let's listen to the next message. Hey, Luke. It's your friend, Jet. Um, I'm happy to be celebrating your birthday with you. And I wanted to call in and and uh, share something about you, which is um, some, it's not really advice that you've given me, but it's something I've learned from you. And that is to always be three steps ahead of whatever you're wanting to get done. And I really like this mentality because I'm kind of a procrastinator myself. And um, I feel like since I've met you, I've watched kind of how you operate and learned that Sometimes you just kind of go for it and you you don't get stuck in the thinking about how you're going to do it or how you're going to pull it off or do you even know how to do it. <laughs> in some cases, you just kind of go for it. And I really like that about you and I feel like I've always been kind of maybe three steps behind. So, you know, even though I've been working on this diligently since we've met, I'm now probably just up to like normal, like with with the steps I'm in in the moment, but not really ahead yet, but I'm working on that. So. Uh, thanks for all that inspiration, and I wanted to, I don't really like giving advice, but in the, uh, with, with the fact in mind that I'm a little bit older than you, several months, um, I think back to a time when you and I were jogging, and we were running up this really hard hill, and you were encouraging me, and we got to the top, and we were looking out over the water, and... I was watching you look out and you were talking about this feeling that you get when you look out at the water, like everything's okay for a minute and everything is possible and there's this peace. 
And I love that moment because I always feel like I'm like a giant hippie in our relationship. And I got to see your inner hippie a little bit. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to give you the advice of remembering to always take yourself to those places where you feel those things and where you feel that sense of connectedness and beauty of life. And um, I think that it opens up a world of possibilities. So happy birthday, my friend. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Bye. Uh, that is uh, my friend Jet Sparks, who is an amazing musician who lives in, as I like to call it, the small maritime village of Port Townsend, Washington. And uh, you should just do a Google search for Jet Sparks music to check out what she's doing when she's not running up hills. You know what? Interestingly enough, she and I are, are running this run in Port Townsend coming up next weekend called the Roadie Run. As long as my old man injury of my calf <laughs> sustained while sleeping. As long as that doesn't uh, keep, me from, uh, keep me from competing. All right. Uh, here's the last one. Uh, let's... Let's find out about it together, I guess. Happy birthday to you. Oh, geez. This this sounds like a familiar voice. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear dad. Happy birthday to you. Something that I've learned from you is to call people on their birthdays and leave them a voicemail of yourself singing the happy birthday song. Ta-da! Other than that, I have learned lots of stuff from you, and I'll probably keep learning stuff from you. So I guess my advice would be that you keep learning stuff so I can know more stuff, too. I love you, Dad. Happy birthday. Thanks, you guys. That was really, really sweet and overwhelming and uh, probably difficult for the podcast listeners to get through because it was just uh, an adult human being playing multiple messages of people saying nice things about him. But um, thanks. That was really, that was really nice. And the good news is, for the rest of the time that Livewire exists as a radio show and the podcast exists, I promise I will never, ever, ever mention my birthday again. So we got it all out of the way. Unless I'm doing the show at 80. How about that? Then maybe we can get this together again and uh, I can hear some really nice things like that again. Um, thank you so much. That was really, really incredibly sweet and um, kind of overwhelming. But um, you know what? Let's do this. Let's go out with a song from... Uh, my friend Jet Sparks, who we just heard a couple of messages ago, um, and uh, we'll go with uh, The Bigger Your Heart, The Bigger the Beating, which is a song of hers that I really like. And I just want to say, uh, again, thanks for listening. If you want to find out more about the show, which I promise, if this is the first episode of the podcast you've listened to, it is not just me playing messages from people saying nice things to me. I promise you that is not what the show typically is. All right, here's some Jet Sparks to wrap things up. Uh, talk to you soon. If it's true and they will never understand Helps me get through because I know you can 
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.